Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What is good, y'all? Welcome to this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. As always, I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Uh, for those that are just tuning into the show for the first time, uh, first off, what's up? Welcome to the show. Um, so on, in Catholics with Bibles, you know, our goal is always, always, always to approach Scripture, like the intro says, with the eyes of faith and reason, to approach Scripture with the eyes of a faithful Catholic. Uh, and it's a, we're very Ratzingerian, and by we, I mean me, um, in my approach to Scripture. Um, we always use... We always try to use method C interpretation of scripture, which is taking the tools of modern historical critical scholarship, but using those tools as a faithful follower of Christ, this faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, who we truly believe is raised from the dead. Happy Easter. What is good, y'all? Did you see that segue there? That was a good segue. Um, happy Easter. I hope everybody's Holy Week was awesome. I hope everybody had a very blessed Triduum experience. Hopefully you got a chance to go to all three liturgies, or at least one of the three liturgies, um, or at least at least hopefully you went to Easter Sunday Mass. You know, that's kind of the baseline obligation there. Um, but uh, hope you had a great Easter octave. Um, the Easter season is 50 days, because it's right, it's 50 days until Pentecost Sunday, uh, which is when uh, the Holy Spirit came down and the birthday of the church was had. Um, start planning for the church's birthday party now. Are you even Catholic if you don't throw a happy birthday church party? Come on. Um, but as well as on Catholics with Bibles, we always start with some kind of Greek or Hebrew word of the day uh, before we dive into the main body of whatever we're going to talk about. Um, and I guess I never really answered why I do the Greek and Hebrew word of the day. It's Partly it's, it, well, I'll be honest, partly it's, it's a t totally arbitrary, like, I just think it's cool. Like, I don't know. Let's learn some Greek and Hebrew. Maybe I'm just a nerd like that. Um, but, but also, I, you know, I, I think, and I, I truly believe, and I'm not the only one, you know, that in order to better understand scripture, it is extremely helpful to be able to read it in the language that it was written. You know, St. Teresa Lazou, you know, she she was quoted saying, you know, basically, uh, you know, I wish I had learned Greek and Hebrew in order to pray in the scripture's original language, right? Um, so ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. So, you know, obviously, like, just read it in the vernacular. Super awesome. Really, really, really good. And it's not that it's better to, like, spiritually um, to, like, read in Hebrew and Greek. Um, but at the same time, we have to remember that our theology influences our spirituality, Right. You can pray wrong. There have been, I mean, people, I mean, it doesn't take long to think of them. You can think of like Martin Luther, who truly believed they were praying and discerning the will of God, um, but their theology and philosophy was skewed, and therefore the spiritual conclusions that they came to weren't exactly the best. Like, they weren't exactly in line with God's will, right? Um, so it's important to know the theology, know the philosophy in order to influence in a positive way, in a good way, in a healthy way, our spiritual formation, our spiritual lives, and to deepen it and enrich it, right? Because the more we know about God's word, the more we can know, you know, Jesus' most sacred heart. So uh, Greek and Hebrew words of the day, um, I always try to, to throw those in there um, just to better inform our consciences. 
Um, and to better, not in conscience, to better inform our intellect. Maybe it informed your conscience as well. Maybe you're a better person by listening to this podcast. Hopefully you are. That'd be super dope. Um, so uh, there's a couple words I wanted to throw y'all's way today. Uh, the one I decided on was the word sarks. So sarks, in English should be transliterated S-A-R-X, sarks. Um, it's the Greek word for, for flesh. It can be ter- interpreted flesh, at least. Um, there's a few words that, like soma is another Greek word. It means body. Uh, but sarx is, has a very visceral kind of flesh. Like it's, it's like a meaty word, you know, um, the flesh. Um, and, uh, and the reason I picked that word is because we're continuing our study of the man and woman he created, them, the theology of the body. And this section that we're in right now, was, I guess, <laughs> for me, it was, it was hard to, to, to know what I wanted to talk about, right? So those who've been following along for a little bit now know that, you know, basically in a 20, 30-minute podcast, uh, we just can't, we can't talk about every single thing JP2 talks about. And I, I, I do my best to condense and to summarize uh, the material in a hopefully intellectual way, hopefully a, a way that's, that's uh, faithful to the writings of Pope St. John Paul II. Um, but in this section, he, JP2 just, he breaks out like so many Bible verses, like so many that I was just like, what in, like, which one do I zoom in on? Because there's like, so like he, he breaks out first John again, he breaks out Matthew five, which we're still kind of in on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he breaks out, you know, Romans eight, first Timothy uh, First Thessalonians. I mean, he just he just kind of just keeps keeps quoting Galatians five, which we're going to talk about a, a bit more detail today. Um, and so I was just like, ah, JP two, why are you quoting all these things and actually talking about them in, in pretty good detail too? Um, so I had to kind of condense it. But but Sarks is important uh, because of what we're going to get into today and what the section of this last section of his examination of Matthew five, namely that when a man looks at a woman with a uh, lust in a reductive way or desire in a reductive way, which is lust, he commits adultery in the heart. And so this section still kind of wrapping up that verse and that the, the analysis of that verse is on purity, right? This idea of purity, what does it mean to be pure? Um, and it's, I think this is a really important topic. And this is like one of the big sections of theology of the body where like a purity talk like could be given and for like it's for those who've been following this study for a while my very first episode i think i talked about how it kind of drives me crazy that so often people give quote-unquote theology of the body talks at like youth groups and conferences and stuff um and they kind of just turn into a, a chastity talk right which is part of it right but theology of the body is just that it's theology it's the study of god through our bodies or through in particular through what scripture tells us of our bodies right um, and so I'm always very particular about like, actually, if I'm going to have a theology of the body talk, I'm going to talk about theology, like theology of the body in scripture. Um, and, but this section, he does spend a lot of time on, on purity versus impurity, uh, but not in the sense of like just chastity and abstinence, right? That he really, if you actually read the text, he doesn't really talk about that that much. He does, obviously he does, uh, but it's so much more than that. And so he starts with this, dichotomy, right? We have this, this two sides of this, of what purity could mean uh, in, in the Old Testament, right? We have 
on one hand, ritual purity. We're going to talk about a little bit of that in a second. And on the other hand, we have moral purity. Ritual purity in the Old Testament was not necessarily the same as moral purity, right? Ritual purity, and this is something we, we see glimpses of in the New Testament, right? Um, on this idea of being uh, unclean, of, of eating non-kosher uh, food, Jesus dining with Gentiles, why it was such a scandal, because they were not quote-unquote pure. Um, you know, we have this idea of, you know, why were uh, people who were sick included considered unclean? We're going to talk about that in a second as well. Um, and it's this idea of ritual purity, that the priest in particular needed to be ritually pure in order to perform his priestly duties effectively. And in a certain extent, extent too, the laity, if you will, needed also ritual purity in order to participate in the greater liturgy of the people, right? Uh, the Literally, the nation of Israel is a liturgical empire. Scott Hahn literally has a book called this, called, uh, I think, First Second Corinthians, or Chronicles, you know, Israel's liturgical empire. So I didn't coin that phrase. Scott Hahn did. He's a smart guy. But anyway, um, Israel was a liturgical empire, right? It was a nation designed for worship of God. Literally, half of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are is literally about how to worship God effectively, how to worship him well, how to sacrifice what things, how to keep yourself pure, right? Pure, ritual pure, um, ritual purity. And so this moral purity is on the other hand, and moral purity is a bit more what we're used to nowadays, right? To, to doing the good and knowing the good and all these things. Um, and so for JP2, he kind of it's actually in footnotes too, which is nuts. Like I said, if you ever read Man Will Be Created Them, never skip the footnotes. Footnotes got some juicy steak in there, y'all. Don't skip the footnotes. Um, and so he ha he presents these two different kind of takes of purity in the Old Testament. We have the prophets on one hand, and we have the priestly source on the other. Uh, for those who um, maybe knew the episode, don't know what I mean by priestly source. So we have this guy named Wellhausen in the 1800s. Uh, he's a famous biblical scholar. He had this, uh, it was called the documentary hypothesis. Namely, this was a source critical approach of scripture that there are multiple different quote unquote sources of, uh, within certain books of the Old Testament or within the Old Testament itself. You, for example, you had the priestly source. So namely, uh, the people who wrote certain parts of scripture were priests. And so they wrote as priests to kind of like push forward the importance of priesthood. We had the Elois source, which is the older source, which uh, called God Elohim. Um, we had the Yahweh source, um, which called God Yahweh. Uh, you know, we had all these different quote-unquote sources. And so this priestly, right, source of, of morality was more of the ritual approach, whereas the, the prophetic source of morality was more of a conformity to God's will. And just for example, JP2 gives us an example of uh, Isaiah 1.10 uh, through, what does he quote? 10 through 20. We're not going to read all of them, but just for reference, um, we have this in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense as an abomination is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Right, so it's this view of, it almost sounds as if God doesn't like all of these liturgical practices that he gave Israel. Now we know this is a bit of hyperbolic language that um, the prophet Isaiah is speaking, uh, is writing. Namely, not that he hates, God doesn't hate the liturgy he gave Israel, right? But rather he hates their approach to liturgy. He hates that they come and do all these sacrifices and are only doing them on the outside, but their hearts aren't conformed to him. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the priestly source, which we have, you know, for example, uh, JP2 quotes Psalm 51. And it's, it's a create a pure heart in me, O God. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. A broken and humbled heart, O God, you will not spurn. And so this is more of an approach, this is the priestly approach. It's more of an approach of an awareness of sin and our inability to do anything about it, right? So that, that Psalm we just read, create a pure heart in me, O God. So it's God that needs to create the pure heart in us, right? Because we're sinful and because we are unable to do it ourselves. Hence why we need these sacrifices. We need this liturgy because we can't do it ourselves. We can't forgive ourselves. Our sins are too great. It's this idea of sin and uncleanness. And so just to give a kind of a, a very practical example of like where the Bible talks about uh, uncleanness and what to do about it, JP2 actually points us to uh, Leviticus 15. Um, and this is about as, uh, <laughs> about as blunt as... Um, as you're going to get when it talks about uh, cleanness uh, in the Old Testament. Um, just as a kind of a way to set this up, this is talking about uncleanness and what to do about it, what makes you unclean. And really, in, in summary, and we're going to get to what it's going to say in a second here, um, but when it says uncleanness, really in the Old Testament, I mean, if anything ex left your body, essentially, right? Um, especially if you bled um, or if you touched something that was bleeding, uh, you were unclean. But it was also anything. If you had, you know, stuff that like oozed from you, right? Watch, watch why part of why leprosy was so bad because things oozed from them. Um, that was that would make you unclean and um, all these different things. Um, and so, just for a very very visceral example, um, if you're listening to this with kids, uh, this is your warning to do what you got to do. But it's also from the Bible. I'm literally going to read the Bible. So take that with a grain of salt. Okay. We read this in, in Leviticus 15, 16. And if a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge of blood, which is her regular discharge of her, from her body, she shall be in her impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything upon which she lies during her impurity shall be unclean. Everything also upon which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything upon which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything upon which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her impurity is on him, 
He shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Okay, so the Bible talks about everything. Um, but really just give you an idea of, of this idea of uh, ritual purity, right? It's what happened. Well, if anything left your body and you touched it, you were unclean. And uncleanness didn't necessarily equate to sinfulness, even though a, a sinner would automatically be unclean. Somebody who's unclean isn't necessarily automatically a sinner, right? Uh, Bant Peachy and uh, John Bergsma in their introduction to the Old Testament have a great section on this. Um, and so, for example, this man who lies with the woman, right, his wife, namely, um, it's not a sinful thing to do, even in the Old Testament. A man is allowed to be with his wife. Yet, the very act itself did make them unclean to a certain extent. So he had to wash himself, and she had to wash herself with water, and they were unclean until the next evening, essentially. Um, and so uncleanness didn't equal sin, but sin always equaled uncleanness, right? So that's an important distinction to make. And so for JP2, going back to the theology of the body, he has this whole section kind of talking about all this stuff, but he has to kind of bring it further because he goes back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because JP2 is, is making this idea of adultery, which would make you unclean, right? In the ritual sense, like we just read about, but also in the moral sense, right? Because you were breaking the commandment of God. And so JP2 brings this back, but well, is this what Jesus is just talking about, right? What kind of purity of heart, which he quotes in the Beatitude just before in the same chapter, what does Jesus do? Well, it's important to know this because Jesus isn't simply going back to the beginning. He's advancing. He's, he's fulfilling. But in, in what way? So JP2 actually points us to uh, Galatians 5. So Galatians 5 is this, is, well, there's a lot in Galatians 5. Um, but the section of Galatians 5 that JP2 points to is the section on works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. So it's, just, it's, an, it's a beautiful section, first of all. So you should read it. Um, but we're going to read, uh, well, actually, I'm better. You should all of Galatians. It's a great book. So we have this idea of St. Paul of works of the Spirit versus fruits of the flesh. So what are the works of the Spirit? We read this in Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are plain, immorality, impurity, licentiousness, adultery, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirits, or like revelry, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And so it's important, and this is something that, you know, JP2, he points out. The first work of the flesh is immorality, impurity, and licentiousness, right? This idea of sexual promiscuity. Those are the first works of the flesh. Yet the first fruit of the Spirit is not self-control. It's actually the last one. Why is that? Well, I think the fat, the uh, our Lady of Fatima revealed to the, the visionaries, and I think it's really insightful, 
uh, they, she showed the visionaries uh, a vision of hell. And uh, it's, the visionary said it was like snowflakes falling to the ground, the souls that fall into hell. And they asked the Blessed Mother, like, what's the main sin, right? She says it's, it's lust, right? It's, uh, lust is the main sin that causes people to hell, to, to, uh, to, to go to hell. Um, yet, and this is insightful of the, the seven deadly sins too, and even Dante points this out, and Bishop Barron and a bunch of other uh, theologians, Lust is the least deadly of the deadly sins for a few reasons. One, it's the most bodily, which Satan hates. Another reason, it's the closest to love, right? It's a shallow imitation of love and nowhere near love. But out of the seven deadly sins, it's the closest to love. And also, it's also the easiest to overcome, which is sad that that's the main reason why people go to hell, according to Our Lady Fatima. Why do I say it's the easiest to overcome? Well, because it's the most obvious in a lot of ways, at least physical lust. It's, it's about as obvious as it comes, right? And so we have these works of the flesh versus fruits of the spirit. And notice too, that it's not works of the flesh and works of the spirit. No, it's works of the flesh, which is what you and I do because we're, in, we're directly involved and we cause it and that's it. But fruit of the spirit is the Holy Spirit working in and through us. While we, co- we cooperate it, right? So the fruit of the Spirit is, is still a choice on our part, right? But it's the primacy of grace through faith that empowers us and that bears fruit in us with our cooperation, right? And so this inkrasia is, in, is the Greek. It's uh, for self-mastery. And JP2 talks about this before. Self-mastery must come for self-gift. Remember, hermeneutic of gift is everything. And so you can't give what you don't have. And if the gift is, of our, is ourselves, and that's the goal is to make a full gift of self to others, you can't give what you don't have, which is why self-mastery, self-control is still a fruit of the Spirit because it's necessary. But notice that chastity is not. Chastity is not a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is. Because if you have self-control, chastity just comes. It's, 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 it's assumed, Right? because you have perfect control over yourself and can therefore give yourself at the appropriate time. Remember, what, what is chastity? Chastity is not abstinence, right? Abstinence is complete abstaining, not doing uh, anything sexual, right? With anybody, right? Chastity is rather the proper orientation of your sexuality towards what it is, what's supposed to, right? Or towards your vocation, namely. And so... A married couple could have sex every single day and be perfectly chaste, right? While a priest, religious, somebody who's not married, somebody who's engaged, right, consecrated single, if they ever had sex outside of the vocation of marriage, it would be sinful, right? Um, So therefore, they have to abstain in order to be chaste. But a married couple does not have to abstain in order to be chaste. In fact, if a married couple is constantly abstaining. It depends on the reason. Obviously, there's medical reasons and a cornucopious amount of reasons we're not going to get into. But it, it might be a form, at least this is food for thought, and this is, more, this is me, not JP2. So take this with a grain of salt. But if, if a married couple doesn't come together ever, right? I mean, I wonder if that's also a form of unchastity because it's, a, it's a not a properly oriented 
uh, gift of sexuality for the other. Because sexuality for a married couple is not just procreative, it's also unitive, right? It's supposed to bring the couple together because it's in the, the conjugal act that the sacramental grace of, the, of marriage really comes forth and brings, brings to life the married couple. Why? Because it's in the conjugal act that we imitate the Trinity to a certain extent, right? It's, it's, we are, the two become one flesh, which we spend a whole bunch of time talking about. So unchastity is the pro, or sorry, chastity is the proper orientation of one's sexuality. And so purity, right, which is a section. Purity is something that's not just ritual for Jesus. It's not just moral. It's both. It's both, right? And so there's this quote JP2 says in the, his 50th audience. In connection with this juridical and religious tradition of the Old Covenant, a wrong way of understanding purity developed, right? Moral purity was often understood in an exclusively external and material way. At any rate, an explicit tendency towards such an interpretation became widespread. And Christ opposed this, right? Christ opposed this, um, this, this idea. And so purity, chastity, right? This purity mindset, this is now his 56th audience that I'm about to quote, which just shows you how much material we're covering. Um, but it, it, he says it's an ability. And so I, I just want to read this next quote right away. He says this. Abstaining from unchastity, which implies keeping the body with holiness and reverence, allows us to deduce that according to the apostles' teaching, purity is an ability. Purity is an ability centered on the dignity of the body, that is, on the dignity of the person in relation to his or her, her own body, to the masculinity or femininity that shows itself in that body. Understood as ability, purity is precisely an expression and fruit of life according to the spirit, in the full sense of the term, that is, as a new ability of the human being in whom the gift of the Holy Spirit bears fruit. These two dimensions of purity, the moral dimension or virtue, and the charismatic dimension or gift of the Holy Spirit are present and strictly connected in Paul's message. So like I said, he's, he's quoting a lot of St. Paul, but here he's, he's talking about Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians, uh, and so on. And so purity is an ability. It's something you are capable of doing, right? So Jesus, right? Jesus, he's, he's not just bringing us back to original innocence in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He knows we can't go back there. That ship has sailed after the, Adam, after the fall of Adam and Eve. What's he doing? He's pointing forward to a life of the Spirit, to a life of grace, to saying that looking at another person in a reductive way is lust. Yet, through the gift of the Holy Spirit given to you, you are then empowered and a fruit of the Spirit is to have self-control, to master yourself in order that inspired by the ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit, you can now give of yourself to others. You are empowered to be pure. Baptism has made us clean. 
So this gift of redemption, the penultimate gift of Christ, leads to the gift of the Holy Spirit in our own lives through the sacrament of baptism, which empowers us to see the fruit of self-control in our life, which empowers us to give of ourselves completely to others in our vocation, to live purity, right? Not just on the outside, not just ritually, not just on the inside, not through, you know, just the good, good works, but truly a pure life is a life of the Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to engulf you, overwhelm you, empower you to give of yourself to others. So Christ points forward. He doesn't just point backwards. Uh, so if you want to read more in this section, I think it's, uh, yeah, audience 50 through like 60, basically. So 10, 10 audiences. <laughs> uh, but it's really good stuff. Uh, so next week, we'll actually be wrapping up this section of Theology of the Body uh, before moving on to our next session of Theology Body, for those looking at me on the camera, this is where we're at, right? We're like, we're like halfway through, you know, just under halfway through <laughs> um, all of this. And so, but it's just so good, y'all. And it's so important, I think, on today's day and age uh, to understand the Theology Body, understand it well. So with that, thank you, as always, for joining me on this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. And if you have not Go ahead and subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe to the channel. Click the button right below. Um, and if you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, please subscribe to the channel. Give us a review. It helps people find us on the interwebs a little bit easier. So until next time, y'all, God bless. Once again, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. If there's everything, if there's everything, if there's anything you ever want us to cover on the series after this Theology of the Body, uh, don't be afraid. Shoot me a message. Shoot me an email. I'm always open to suggestions. It helps me keep the content relevant to y'all's intellectual formation as authentic disciples of Christ. So until next time, y'all, take it easy.